So I was thinking this week about a phrase that I um, heard years ago. Um, I don't know when I first heard it, but I always heard it initially in relationship to um, like exercise at some level. And so here's the phrase. Maybe you've heard it before. Um, maybe you haven't. Like it's a phrase that's used in a movie. Uh, it's the title of a movie. I haven't seen the movie. It may or may not be good. I can't speak to that. Um, it speaks to the human condition and in ways in which we don't necessarily love, like it, we would rather to kind of avoid it. We'd rather not embrace it. And here's the phrase, uh, no pain, no gain. Right? You've heard it before. It's not new. In fact, it's so not new that the first time it was recorded, like it was paraphrased in 700 BC by a Greek poet. And then it wasn't really popularized until 1853 uh, by a guy named... R.C. Trench, in fact, his quote is this, and he's writing a book on wisdom from the Proverbs, on lessons in Proverbs, and here's what he wrote. For the most part, they courageously accept the law of labor. No pains, no gains, no sweat, no sweet, as the appointed law and condition of man's life. So what's the point? What are we going to understand in this? That it just seems like so often the reality is this, that on the other side of hard work or suffering or whatever it might be is where we find the good things that come with us on the other side of suffering. The truth is, that sounds like a bummer. I don't want to suffer. You probably don't want to suffer either. But what if we begin to find that some pains and some sufferings on the other side of them, that they are worth it? In fact, what if it leads to our greatest transformation? What we find is this. Paul wrote a phrase in the book of Romans, we're not going to look at it today, but we've talked about it before, but it's this, that suffering leads to perseverance, perseverance leads to character, character leads to hope, and hope leads us to the place we come to know the fullness of God's love. So suffering produces in us this transformed heart and mind and life. But again, suffering isn't fun, and no one chooses to sign up for it. But what if, what if what seems like our darkest road may lead us to our greatest life. What if what seems like our darkest road might lead us to our greatest life? I get it. None of us want to choose suffering, but what if these moments of suffering lead us to the place where we really are transformed? We become new. We find new life. We find hope begins to reign in and through us, right? And we're going to look at a letter that Peter wrote to the early church. It's 1 Peter chapter 5. We'll be there in just a few moments. But, but Peter writes this letter Having lived in such a way that he was transformed, Peter, right, was the kind of person who um, had to be restored. He had been a part of a betrayal of Jesus, uh, was kind of pushed aside, and then he was restored by Jesus, and he knew what would happen, that our suffering could lead to God's restorative work in and through us, and how it really could change everything. But what might that look like if you and I are to live the life that leads to life? What if there's a form of pain that might be worth the actual gain? And I'm not just talking about going to the gym. What if there's a way for us to live that we begin to find that it leads to the transformed heart and mind and life? Or what if we begin to think of it this way? It leads to what we would define as, from a scriptural perspective, the real good life. So Peter writes this letter to the early church saying, hey, here's what it looks like to follow after Jesus. Here's what he writes. Chapter 5, verse 6. Humble yourselves... Therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him, because he cares for you. Be alert and of sober mind. 
Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. Let's start with the first line that seems a little out of place, honestly, in this context. It seems like it doesn't fit. He says this, humble yourselves. Humble yourselves, right? Here's the reality. Humility is called to be one of the markers of the very people of God, those who have committed themselves to Jesus. But then Peter does something that we might not catch or we might not like, honestly. Peter connects our humility with our willingness to cast our anxiety upon him, him being God, him being Jesus, him being those, the, the idea that we would trust it to the divine, that we would say, God, it's yours to handle. I won't carry my anxiety any longer. Will we be willing to live in such a way that our humility is connected to our ability to trust our anxiety upon him? So differently, if we don't cast our anxiety upon God, we lack humility. That doesn't seem like at first glance something we'd like, but one scholar put it this way. He said, to be overwhelmed with anxiety is to be concerned with self rather than with him. Now, I want to be clear today. Uh, there are legitimate mental health issues that exist, and anxiety is one of them, and some of you may suffer from that, and that is different than the kind of anxiety that's talking about here. This idea that I'm just going to worry about what comes next, I'm going to worry about the tomorrow, I, I'm going to worry about my family, I'm going to worry about what the government's doing, I'm going to worry about my money, I'm going to, I'm going to worry about all these things. That's, those are the things of the daily life that we find ourselves worried about. That's the anxiety that Peter is writing about, that we'd learn to entrust that to him, that we would lay it aside, that we would entrust it to the Father and say, God, we trust it to you because I know the depth of your love seen in your Son. Now, here's the reality. We live in a world that by almost every metric you can come up with, it is more safer, it is more safe, more peaceable, there's less poverty, there's less hunger, right? There are less issues at any time in human history. However, there is one area of life that has dramatically increased over the last several decades more than any other area, and that is the area of anxiety. Right? There's been a dramatic increase in anxiety, and part of here's why. As social media or digital communication has increased, so has anxiety. And here's part of why. Because in social media, we believe that my voice matters as much as anyone else's. It's not true, by the way. Right? If, you're, if you go to the doctor, like, there's a reason that I, I want an expert when I go to the doctor. So my voice doesn't matter as much as theirs when it comes to that. It doesn't. Theirs is more valuable. But when we buy in that my voice is equally as important, it's not. Or when we buy into the idea that I'm the center of my own life or the center of the universe, or, or you know what, they got more likes than I did. Gosh, it's awful. More people commented on their posts. I got to make like a side joke here on this because I actually thought it was hysterical. I told Matt, I, like I post things occasionally on social media. I'm not on there a lot, but I was laughing about how um, last week I posted a thing where um, the high school golf team that I helped coach, they um, were doing a fundraiser at Chick-fil-A. And so I wrote like, why would you not go to Chick-fil-A? It's like manna from heaven. Not one person liked or commented on it. I was appalled. 
<clears throat> like I said, social media increases anxiety. No, um, but here's the reality. Like, we want those things. Those things create, like, dopamine in us, and, like, we are connected to screens and all these things. And for students today, you want to know what the biggest issue on college campuses is? It's an increase in mental health issues. Why? Right? For our teenagers and young adults, like, we are, we are so connected. It's not just teenagers and young adults, by the way. It's old people, too. Some people on social media the most are old people. If that's you, knock it off. Right? I mean, like, like it, it is increasing our anxiety, not decreasing it. And so when Peter writes these words that we are to cast our anxiety upon him, we cannot do it when we find that we are engaged in some of these things because they mess us up. Humility isn't just thinking that you're less than. Humility is thinking of yourself less. Said differently, humility is what leads to our transformation. Peter's own life models that he shifts from a person who is violent and impetuous to a person who becomes like this kind of sage leader of the church over time. He was transformed. It's how we're called to live as a transformed people who've learned to entrust things to him over and over again. It's learning to entrust our whole family, our future, our lives, everything to him. And when we don't entrust those things to God, what it models is actually a lack of humility. We hold our anxiety and our fear and our concern and we just own it. It doesn't mean they just don't come up. But if we don't learn to continue to cast them to him and let him take them for us, then they are just weights that weigh us down. And over and over again, it lacks humility. It's the opposite of humility. Humility says, like, I know I can't change most of those things anyway. Like, I don't know who's going to be elected president or who's going to be elected to whatever. It doesn't really matter. I trust God. To live from that space, right? Like, that's what it looks like to do that, to trust these things to him, to trust that he is above and through and in all things, that God will work for the good of those who love him. We can trust all these things to him, and Peter knows this well, and trust our whole life and all things that create anxiety to him. Because when we don't, what we were saying is this, I know best, and I can take care of it myself. And that's a dangerous lie to believe. I'll talk about why in just a few minutes, but let's go back to the words of Peter. He says, so cast all anxiety upon him, and then we say, why? And then what do we do after that? If we've cast all anxiety to him, what do we do? Well, then he shifts the line, and he says this. Stay alert and sober-minded, and that's more than being awake and not drunk. To be alert and sober-minded is this reminder that we are called to live a life of full trust and full effort. We do have a role to play in not just our faith, but the work of God's kingdom in the world. And if things are a reflection of his kingdom, are we living them out? Are we helping others live into that? Or are we like, ah, you know, like someone else will do that? Right, here's the reality. Worry is denounced, but watchfulness is demanded. We're called to be aware, to recognize the things that might be leading us astray, and to help one another in that. One of the greatest temptations for all of us, though, is distraction. There are all kinds of things that distract us from our faith. Right? There are things that with our children, or there are things politically, or our money, or the news, or social media, or whatever digital communication we have. Like All these things can distract us 
And that's one of the greatest temptations. Because if I am distracted, then my primary concern is not becoming a disciple of Jesus or helping others to become a disciple of Jesus. Because if we say Jesus is Lord, if we say we are a Christian, if we say we are his follower, that becomes our primary way of life and our primary life goal. To be connected to the Holy Spirit in a way that transforms us and leads to the transformation of others. Why? Because we've come to know Jesus and his love for us, seen in his death, his resurrection, it leads to new life. And so we begin to find over and over again, his temptations look different than we often think they do. Temptations are not super overt. It's why I love the line of Peter here. He says this, the devil prowls around like a roaring liar looking for someone to devour, to devour, to drink down, swallow whole, or gulp down. Right, now, I'm going to stop for a second because I just mentioned the devil. And for some of us, we went to one of two places. Let's be honest. Right? It's okay. Um, <clears throat> we went to one place where maybe we just pictured like a red demon with horns and a red tail and a pitchfork. Maybe you went there. That's okay. Like, I get it. Maybe today you went to the place where you're like, yeah, I don't know that I believe in that. Um, I think it was just like something from an ancient book a long time ago. Fine. You barely went there. I would be more likely to go there than, than the pitchfork. But what if... What if there is something that exists in the world that we can't explain away with science? What if the reality is this? That what if there is, Paul would write later, there are principalities and powers of darkness that exist in the world in such a way that they are things that drive us or move our minds to think differently, to think ways in which are counter to the kingdom of God, counter to the way of Jesus. C.S. Lewis, one of the great writers of the 20th century, and, and one of the things he wrote, multiple things that were really great, but one of them that I actually would encourage you to read is called The Screwtape Letters. It's this idea that it's a, a senior demon having a conversation with a junior demon. It's a fictional book. But, but rather than like the overt temptations, it's such more subtle. Why? Because it's, it's this idea that the deceptive idea is that the more they are twisted, right, that begins to make it easy for us to be tempted to live into ways that are counter. Jesus. So let's just imagine for just a few moments that there is, and there are, principalities and powers of darkness that exist in the world. If we were to use some of the words of C.S. Lewis, here's what he wrote. There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or magician with the same delight. So back to the text. Peter uses a particular word here, the word that we have translated as devil. It's diabolos. It's the same word that Jesus used as well. And what it means is this, to slander or accuse or the accuser. What we find throughout the New Testament is over and over again used in this way. The tempter, or the one who tempts. The prince of evil, who's anti the purposes of God's work in the world. And so I appreciate, um, I really enjoy this. By the way, someone here may have borrowed my book. If you have the book Live No Lies and it was from me, hey, I would love it back because this is not my copy. Um, I texted a bunch of people I thought I might have borrowed it. Could be one of you. If not, I'll eventually have to get another copy. But um, I appreciated John Mark Comer's book in this. And so I loved one of the things he said. Um, he paraphrased kind of what we see about what the idea of the devil or demonic forces are in the New Testament. And here's what he recorded for us. Since he was created by God, this is key. He's not God's equal and opposite, but a created being with a beginning and an end. His original role seems to have been the spiritual formation of human beings through testing. Think of how a teacher tests children to bring them to maturity. But, as we see in the story of Job, 
He began to drift from his charter and used his skill set to tempt human beings into spiritual deformation. He sat on God's divine council, a group of hand-selected spiritual beings whose job was to collaborate with God's rule over the world. But he chose to rebel against God's rule, to seize the world's throne for himself, and to enlist as many creatures as possible in his violent insurgency. Some scholars argue that Eden was created in a war zone, as a beachhead for God's kingdom. But when humans later joined in the devil's rebellion, the earth fell under his dominion. For thousands of years, he held sway as the prince of this world, leading vast swaths of human and non-human creatures in their ongoing quest to seize autonomy from God and redefine good and evil as they saw fit. He was the animating energy behind many of the great atrocities of history, and some argue even involved in the evolutionary process itself. Jesus came to destroy the devil's work, to bind the strong man, and set humanity free. He did this first through his defeat of the devil in the desert, then through his teaching and exorcisms, and finally through his death and resurrection and exaltation, in which he disarmed the powers and authorities and made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Jesus' victory over the devil was like D-Day to World War II, the decisive battle that marked the beginning of the war's end. The devil's fate was sealed on the first Easter, as Hitler's was on June 6, 1944. But there are still many miles to cover to reach our equivalent of Berlin. In the interim, the devil is like a wounded animal, a dying dragon, more dangerous than ever. Contrary to popular artistic imaginings, the devil is not in hell. He's here on earth. If Jesus' anthem is on earth as it is in heaven, the devil's is on earth as it is in hell. Jesus' kingdom was and still is nonviolent. However, Jesus likened the kingdom to a warlike assault on the gates of hell. In this ongoing war, harm, spiritual, mental, emotional, and even physical, is a very real possibility. Followers of Jesus are not immune. We bleed red. We suffer and die along with the rest of humanity. We're vulnerable to temptation and deceit. Though we know how the story ends, we are warned to stay alert and of sober mind, for the devil prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. A great hope is in Jesus' return to finish what he started. On that day, the devil and his ilk will be thrown into the lake of fire, and all the evil will be eradicated from God's good creation forever. We'll then take our place as God's co-rulers with Jesus, the king over his beautiful world. What John Mark goes on to say is this, that he talks about the, the devil more as deceptive ideas. That's why he's called the Prince of Lies, the Deceiver, the Tempter. It's why it's not a capitalized devil. It's why it's not a name. It's about what he does. What principles and powers of darkness do in the world. And so if we think about Peter's words here, this idea that he devours, maybe we go back and we think about, well, how do we combat the one who wants to devour us? Vagrius Ponicus was a 4th century monk who went out into the wilderness to combat the devil. That was his goal. And so he was going to go, how do I do this? And so he went out in the deserts of Egypt and did this. And a friend years later came back to him and all kinds of monks went to see him. And, and he wrote a book, right? It's got the best title of any book maybe ever. Here's the title, Talking Back, a monastic handbook for combating demons. Pretty good title, right? You can look it up if you want. But, but over and over again, what he found was that in his desire to help in that process, what he was fighting against over and over and over again were things of the mind. Thoughts, thought patterns, 
internal narratives, internal belief structures. Right? It's war, this idea of this war that is waged is against principalities and powers of darkness, not against the flesh, not against other people. Right? And often people will say things like this, and maybe you've said it before, well, the devil made me do it. No, he probably didn't. You're not that important, and neither am I. Right? Like, so here's an example. Like, if you're on your way to church today, and you and your spouse got in a fight in the car, and um, you were arguing about something, and you, whatever it might be, and you got here, and you said, well, the devil made me do it. He didn't. He probably didn't show up in your minivan. You didn't trip over a banana peel because of the devil made you do it. However, what we might begin to find is that we don't get to blame our stupidity, our anger, or our bad luck on him. But we can begin to recognize that sometimes we have bought into believing certain things that just are not true over time. Because our internal belief systems and structures and the things of the world in which we live have caused us to believe things over time that we think are true. And what Jesus comes to say, again, we'll talk about this in a few weeks, is I am the way, the truth, and the life. To quote John Mark again, here's this line. Our fight with the devil is first and foremost a fight to take back control of our minds from their captivity to lies and liberate them with the weapon of truth. Ideas like, I'm not lovable. Since no one knows, it's okay. I can't trust anyone because of what someone did to me years ago. My happiness is the most important thing in my life. We could take this all kinds of further places, right? It's why we, we struggle with anxiety, because we want to control situations and things, and we believe lies like we can. We'll be concerned about who is or isn't elected to some office. We'll be concerned about who is or isn't our neighbor. We'll be concerned about who is or isn't whatever it might be. We hold these concerns, and they create anxiety in us, and they are things, they are lies, they are deceptions of the devil. They are the things, the thought patterns that mess us up, and we buy into things that become priority in our life that don't really matter. In fact, what we begin to find is this is the way it has been all throughout the scriptures from the beginning. In the beginning, Genesis chapters 1 and 2 are the story of God creating, right? And he says, everything created is good. And then we have Genesis chapter 3. We often try to start at 3, by the way. Um, We don't. Start at 1. He creates everything. He says it's good. Genesis chapter 3, on the other hand, though, is the beginning of what we begin to find over and over again. It is the temptation for all of us, for humanity. This is the temptation to seize autonomy from God and redefine good and evil based on what feels good rather than trusting in who God is. In fact, here's what we find in Genesis chapter 3, beginning with verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say... You must not eat from any tree in the garden. The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden. But God did say, You must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Notice the pattern of the devil in this. He points out what obviously looks good, and it probably is good. There's a reason why the things that are sinful in life, or even sometimes things that are evil, like, are appealing to us. They look good, right? If sin wasn't fun, no one would do it. 
But what we find is we do it and then only find that it leads to destruction and brokenness that we didn't recognize on the front end. And we find that we get stuck in patterns of living, thought patterns that bring us back to the same place again and again and again. And they destroy us because we begin to believe they are the things that we should hold most central and most dear. And this is the temptation of the devil in this, the deceptive idea about what could be. Right? It's this idea that this, right? if you're going to lie to someone and you tell such an egregious lie that no one's going to believe you, like, that doesn't work. If you're going to lie to someone, you tell something that's almost entirely true, but you make sure the linchpin, the part at the end, the part where you need to manipulate, that part's untrue. Right? It's the same pattern of the devil here in this text. It's why we as people ask this kind of question. Like we ask it in the garden, we ask it in here and now. Who's God? What's he like? Can I trust him? And it lies in these moments, and he says this, he's an unloving, jealous tyrant who's holding out on you. You can't trust him. All right, I love this quote from the book, Live No Lies. It's this quote, the idea of this conversation with the devil. If we were to paraphrase it differently, send a little more language that might be helpful for us, here's what we find. You're not just a human being with a place in an ordered cosmos over the creation, but still under the creator, which is who we are, by the way. The temptation, the deception is to not believe that is true. No, you transgress your limitations and become whoever and whatever you want. Identity is self-defined. Morality is self-determined. Take control of your own life. You will be like God. You can't trust God, but you can trust yourself, your own wisdom and desires. Look at this bright, shiny thing, this tree that God says was off limits. Eat it, take it, seize it, do it, experience it. Follow your heart. Your inner intuition is the most accurate map to the happy life you crave. Lies that many of us probably believe at different times, in different situations, in different moments. So if the devil is real and temptation is real, how do we overcome that? And this is what Peter is trying to get across in this text. It says this, the devil will use our suffering in our moments of despair He'll use those ammunition to twist who God is and who God's love actually looks like. He'll twist those moments to, where God wants to say to us over and over again, I desperately love you, love you. I am with you in what you were experiencing. I am near you in the midst of all that you're going through. That's why Paul would write that God doesn't cause the evil that happens in our lives, but God works for the good of those who love him. He'll work to bring good out of the broken situations we experience, that he is present with us in the midst of them. He is not the causation of them, but his goodness and his love will see us through them. It doesn't mean everything we experience is good, by the way. And it's okay to recognize that you're going through moments of pain or suffering, where you hurt, we've lost someone we love, when our kids are estranged, when we've lost our job, in the midst of whatever the experience might be, no matter how despairing it might feel, God is still present with us and will still do his work in and through us. If we will trust ourselves to him, he will bring good as much as possible out of whatever the situation may look like, no matter how dark it may seem. So what do we do? What does Peter say? We resist him and we stand firm. And we recognize we never do this alone. It's one of the most powerful images that Peter gives here, that we are part of a community of faith that has 2,000 plus years of history behind it, that we find ourselves gathering today, recognizing this, that we are not alone, that millions and billions of people around the world are gathering on a day just like this all around the globe, 
singing songs to God, hearing scripture read, and proclaiming the goodness of who God is, and saying, you and I are not alone in this. It's why we affirm the Apostles' Creed, which says we believe the one holy Catholic universal church. We are never in this by ourselves. One of the deceptive lies that we will sometimes believe is I have to do it alone. And it's just about me. And I'll just go through it myself. And I can't mess with it. It's why today, we, in just a few moments, we'll baptize a couple people this morning. But it's why we do baptism in a community of faith and not alone. Right? So public declaration is one of the ways that we stand firm and we resist the devil. By our public confession of faith, by the church's recognition that we are in this together, that we together are going to come to know who God is, and we will baptize people in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, recognizing you are connected to the community of faith. Why do we not do it as a private event? Well, one, it would be really awkward if it was a fully clothed bath with your pastor. That's just weird. But we do it as a communal event because it is one of the ways in which we publicly confess that Jesus is Lord. And we have been and continue to be transformed by his goodness and by his grace. It's why we can say today that sometimes our suffering, our pain, may lead to the greatest life, our gain. God, who calls you and I to endure suffering, empowers us to overcome whatever suffering we may experience. Suffering can and will strengthen us if we allow Jesus to restore us. To restore is to put in order, to cause to be in a condition to function well. It's why Peter and Paul and others would write throughout the whole New Testament, we don't oppose the persecutors. Jesus would say, love your enemies. Why? Because our war is not with flesh and blood, but with the principalities and powers of darkness. So what do we do? We stand firm. We stay faithful. We trust God is with us. And then the words of Peter ring even more loudly in our ears. And the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. The one who loves you is faithful. And Jesus invites you and I to know the power of his resurrection, which gives us new life. At the end of the day, whatever pains you and I may experience, we can come to know the greatest gain that ever was or ever could be, life eternal with God, here, now, and for all eternity. You and I are invited into a relationship with God in such a way that we can come to know life eternal here and now, that no matter what we've experienced, no matter what we've gone through, he is and will continue to transform us. And he does this by the work of his spirit, by our patient endurance, by recognizing that suffering leads to perseverance, and perseverance to our character and character our hope, because we have come to know the fullness of God's love. So you and I are invited to know life eternal here and now. We pray with me today. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to gather together today. For the way you love us, for the way you come near to us, for the way you help us to be the kind of people who have been so radically transformed by your grace and by your goodness and by your love. And so Father, this morning we pray that we would find ourselves so committed to you that whatever we've experienced, whatever things we have used to believe that you would help 
transform our minds so that whatever thought patterns or internal structures or narratives or stories we have believed about ourselves or about the world would be centered upon your son, Jesus. And they would continue to shape how we think and live and act. That we would find your love and your grace and your mercy would be the greatest things in our life. That they would define who we are. That our character would be shaped by the very character of your son. As this morning, if we find ourselves in places where we feel like temptation is overcoming us, we feel like our suffering is at its greatest, or we find ourselves recognizing we have been so distracted that we wouldn't be able to live in such a way that we're connected to you anyway, that you today would help us to have open eyes and ears to hear your still, small voice. And so, Father, we pray that you would help us to be your people more and more and more. We pray all of this in your son Jesus' name.